a little bit out of practice here. Let's pray. Father, amen. Hallelujah. One thousand times, and, and after that, another thousand times. Uh, we, we praise you, Father, today. Help me uh, to explain this word uh, faithfully, and I pray for anybody here today that is going through a tough time or needs encouragement or something like that, that this, these words of, of God would uh, help them or help her in whatever situation they may be in. Lord, we never know what's in the hearts of people. Uh, I just pray that we, we may get out of here with a renewed sense of your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Take a seat. Okay, uh, let me <laughs> have you turn to First Timothy chapter, First Timothy 3, uh, verses 1 through 7. We're going to be talking about a topic that is... Um, it's really kind of like an acquired taste for me, uh, this thing about elders. I was not used to elders uh, with this nomenclature. I grew up as a good Southern Baptist boy down in the what I would call the deep, deep South. I mean, we're talking about Uruguay, South America, you know, 6,000 miles south. You don't even know what deep south is until you, you know, you can see Antarctica from there, right? Things like that. But, but I grew up as a, as, a, as a Southern Baptist. Nothing wrong with that. And I, when I came to the States, I uh, went to college in Longview, Texas, and then I decided to transfer to U of H. This was almost, what, wow, almost 40 years ago. A friend of mine said, hey, I recommend a church for you. They speak your language. They speak with your same accent. I, and so I came to Houston. I called this number, and I ended up in a, an assembly. I didn't know what that was. And I went into this Argentinian church. They met on Cash Road near here in Stafford. And I sat down to a breaking, what they would call a breaking of bread service. It was very new to me. And all of a sudden I saw that these men just got up spontaneously and they spoke the word of God and they knew what they were saying. And I was saying, who, who is organizing this? Where is the pastor, Right. Who's in charge here, right? And it was not obvious to me in that meeting that there was any organization at all in that church. And of course, you know, very quickly I discovered that, yes, there were three or four uh, very respectable and respected men in there that they talked softly, but boy, they carried a big stick. I mean, they had the authority of the church and the church respected them. And in time, Quickly, I, be, I loved them, I, they became my models, and I, to this day, these elders in this church that we now call the CFC down the road here um, are good friends and my models, right, um, besides any other elders that came after that. But I just wanted to tell you that, because Timothy is <laughs> faced with the decision, how do I recognize elders, leaders in this church, right? Let me uh, read quickly First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, and here is a list of qualifications. The husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, skillful in teaching, not overindulging in wine, not a bully, but gentle, not contentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. For if a man 
does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Good question, right? And not a new convert, by the way, so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil. A little bit of context here. Paul had stayed and preached and ministered in this church in his third missionary journey, many years from where we are today. And so he took a young guy called Timothy, and Timothy, for all we know, stayed and ministered alongside Paul in this church of Ephesus. And when Paul decided to come back to Jerusalem in that year, I believe it was maybe year, I don't know, 60 AD or something like that, he makes the point of going back through Ephesus. He calls the elders of the Ephesian church, and there on the beach, he tells them some bad news. And he tells his elders that among you, a few years from now, among your group, your successors, there will come some wolves, savage wolves that will wreak havoc in this congregation. And so we fast forward a few years after Paul now is free again after having been in front of Caesar's court. I think he was acquitted of all charges. He went back roaming through the Roman Empire, and now he sends Timothy to that church in Ephesus because exactly like what he had predicted, things were a little bit of a mess in the church of Ephesus. And so here's Timothy, a young man, uh, trying to put some order in this church. That's, that's the context, right? Paul says to Timothy, Timothy 1 Timothy 1.3, we've read it already, but just for context, just as I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia... To remain on at Ephesus. Don't leave yet, Timothy, uh, because I know you want to get out of Dodge. It's, it's tough over there. But just stay so that you would instruct certain people not to teach strange doctrines. Exactly. The antagonists, the adversaries of the true gospel had appeared, right? The people that were saying and teaching strange stuff. Not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to useless speculation rather than advance the, um, the plan of God, which is by faith, so I urge you now. And Paul goes on then to write this epistle, which is a very practical book. This is not a heavy theological book. And so we saw uh, in the past few Sundays how Paul wants men to behave in church, for example. Men should be respectable men, should uh, lift holy hands to God with no anger, with holiness. And then women, last Sunday we saw how women should be conducting themselves in church. And Paul emphasizes the modesty, the dress, all that stuff, the submission of the women. And today, then go, Paul goes for the real nitty-gritty of how to recognize these men that were probably saying to Timothy, I want to be an elder. I'm, I'm pretty good. I can teach well, right? Uh, and so there's Timothy trying to decide what to do, what criteria to use. So, verse 1 again. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Let me just get this out of the way. In my translation says, if a man, if any man. Now, 
that's not in the Greek. <laughs> and your translations may say, if anyone, right? So it doesn't say man like male biologically, but so let me raise a question. Can women be elders? Is Paul, Paul talking about men and women? Well, no, I don't think Paul would say that. Paul would say no. And so I believe, based on the aggregate teaching of the New Testament, that um, men and men only should be the uh, visible leaders, whatever slash uh, shepherds, uh, overseers, pastors of the local church. What I'm saying, I realize what I'm saying is um, not culturally accepted very well in some religious circles or by our society today, but I believe that that is the case. So we're talking about men here. We're talking about men. Not a question of importance of the roles, uh, but on, only a question of proper order, of proper roles in the scheme of God. If any man then aspires to the office of overseer, overseer, episkopos in Greek, which means exactly that, over, seer, somebody looking at other people from above, overseer, episcopos, we would uh, term this, uh, this term um, foreman or supervisor. If any man aspires to this office, it is a good thing. You may see, read in your translation, the word bishop there, okay? Bishop is the same thing as overseer. Let me just say quickly that overseer, elder, pastor, really denote the same office in the New Testament. Don't have time to elaborate on that, but let me refer you to Titus. At the same time, pretty much, that Paul writes First Timothy, he writes to Titus also. And the same way he had sent uh, Timothy to troubleshoot there the things at Ephesus, he also had sent Titus to be the troubleshooter uh, at, at, at the island of Crete. There were problems in both places. And we have two pretty much identical lists of qualifications, both in Timothy and, and Titus. And, and so when Paul says to Titus, he uses the word elder there. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders. He uses here the word presbyterus. He did, doesn't use the word episcopos in every city as I directed you. And the context, of course, it's clear to us that episcopus, overseer, or presbyterus, elder really denotes the, the same type of office. Okay? So let, let, let's pretend we are like sitting in the same room with Timothy when he is interviewing these men for the job of elders, right? We are like flies on the wall. And so here's the interviewer for the job, uh, uh, Timothy, right? And I think there's, like any job interview that I've been through, there's three questions that come to mind about the suitability of the candidate, okay? There's a question of motivation. Why do you want this job? There's a question of your abilities and skill set. Do you know the job? Do you, can you do the job? Are you competent? And there's a question of character. <laughs> right? So let's go through this and see, because Paul talks about some of these things here, right? In the, in the list of qualifications. So let's start with the question of motivation. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, in other words, it has to come from within. You have to aspire to it. 
this is not the type of job that you accidentally <laughs> kind of step into the job of elder, right? It can't be forced upon someone. It has to come from within. This aspiration, this motivation to serve the Lord cannot be out of compulsion. There is this couple of verses in First Peter chapter 5, and it's a great verse because it, Peter also uses the three terms here. He uses the term elder, overseer, and pastor in the same couple of verses. Listen to what First Peter 5 says here. Therefore, I urge elders, presbyterus, among you as your fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and one who is also a fellow partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd, which is the word pastor, point man in the Greek, uh, that is what elders do. Elders shepherd people. It's part of the deal. Pastor or shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. Mm, oversight, overseer, yes. It is the same root, the word episcopos. See? Elder, episcopos, uh, overseer, pastor, re they're really talking about the same conglomerate of angles that comprise this job description. Not under compulsion, says uh, Peter, though. Same thing. It has to come from the right motivation, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, says in my translation. This presupposes, of course, that this elder candidate in that church at Ephesus had to come to Timothy out of good motives, right? Paul is not saying that, but how easy it is, really, for some young men, or for some men, to aspire to the office of elder out of impure motives. You would say, I would never, some of you are saying, I would never be tempted about that. Because you kind of see the job of elder as a curse. It is not a curse. It is a tough job. It requires some special people. But, but, but it is a blessing to serve the Lord in that capacity. But, you know, elders, elders are very visible people. That can be an impure motivation for some young man to say, hey, I'd, I'd like to try that, you know. Elders are very visible people. Elders are very respected people. Elders are very impactful people. People trust them. They come to them with their problems, right? So it is very, very, I, I think, easy to come and aspire to be an elder and overseer out of impure motives. Be careful, Timothy, when you interview this candidate that wants to be an elder, uh, you need to go and, and filter that motivation thing. So the question of motivation, the question of giftedness, the question of ability, the question of uh, skill set, right? And I am mentioning this topic because, not because it's prominent in this passage, but rather because it is almost completely absent, which is surprising to me. If you ask me, right? The only thing that comes close here to any, any qualifications in terms of skill set, gifts, abilities, is when he says in the NASB, skillful in teaching. He has to be skillful in teaching, meaning he has to be able to transmit uh, accurately, faithfully the word of God to other people. But that's it. Isn't that surprising to you? It is a little bit to me. 
You have interviewed for jobs before, right? You, you probably have a resume made out already or several versions of your resume because, like I do, I did. I tailored my resume to, you know, whatever situation, whatever job I was interviewing with. I, I tried to, of course, emphasize different skills or whatever in my resume. But, but, but in, in your resume, if I would go through the, your resume, I would... I bet I would not find <laughs> in your resume for that job uh, a whole lot on character type issues, right? You, you may say in your resume, I'm dependable, you know, I'm, I'm a straight shooter, character type issues, but most of your resume would be uh, skills, right? Just specific skills. I can use Word. I'm pretty good in PowerPoint. I know Excel. I can type so many words per minute. You remember that one? I know this or that programming language. I can build this. I can use this tool, whatever it is. So you're interviewing for this job, let's say a middle management job. You will probably not get the question out of this interviewer, how is your family life doing these days? Have you been beating up on your wife lately? How about them kids? Are they, are they being obedient? Are they into drugs? No, of course not. Because, see, you, you can be a great manager, but a lousy husband, right? You can be a top salesman in the company and a lousy, terrible father, but not so elders. Elders is the ultimate character profession. Character, right? Do elders need to have leadership qualities? Of course. Do they need to be, you know, know some financial stuff? Of course. But that, that is, I think that's baked in here. Paul doesn't talk about this too much because he presupposes here in context that all these men that were clamoring for the job were, of course, bright people. They were persuasive. They were charismatic guys. They were skilled. Oh, but character. Ah, so motivation, skill sets. And so let's go quickly to the, the, the last uh, point here. Uh, the question of character qualifications. Let me, let me give you this verse. I think that's why Paul, uh, later on to Timothy, he says this to Timothy. First Timothy Timothy 5.22, hopefully you can see, see it here. He says to Timothy, do not lay hands upon anyone too quickly. <laughs> because, Timothy, I, I know that's your temptation. You, you want to recognize elders quickly because you want to get out of dodge here. Do not lay hands, invest authority over new elders too quickly, and thereby, listen to this, share responsibility in the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. In other words, Paul is saying to Timothy, this is a high bar, because Paul seems to be saying to Timothy, if I read this right, is like, if you recognize a new elder, a new overseer, and you have not vetted the guy properly, in other words, if you have gone too quickly and you had not, if you have not allowed his character to show forth in time, his true stripes of this man, then you in essence are complicit 
with the sins of this man. Wow. And then the, the following verse is like this. The sins of some people are quite evident. Going before them to judgment. Meaning you wouldn't even consider those names because their sins are evident. Uh -uh, not elder material, right? But he says, well, for others though, their sins follow after. Meaning are manifested after, you know, in time. So, let's go into the question of character qualifications. This is the way I tend to read the list that follows, okay? I, I first see like an umbrella uh, uh, criteria, threshold, uh, an umbrella threshold, let's say, a standard, an overarching standard, which is given, I think, for, by the phrase, above reproach, being above reproach. Then I see at the bottom, I see an overarching danger that Paul has in mind to guard against, which has to do with the activity of the devil. Did you notice how the devil is mentioned a couple of times in this very, very short passage? Okay? And then, in between, I see those five arenas on, of life in which this man, this prospective elder, has to exercise being above reproach. All right, so let's go to the first issue. The uh, verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach. What does that mean, above reproach? Perfection? No, not perfection. Well, what is above reproach? Well, where do you draw the line? You know, so let me, uh, let, me, let me quote Tom Constable here. Above reproach, according to Constable, is that, quote, he should possess no observable flaw in his character or conduct. That is, there should be no cause for justifiable criticism now or in his past that anyone could use to discredit him and bring reproach on the name of Christ and the church. That's what above reproach means. It means that the overseer will not exhibit obvious, let's say, chinks in his armor that may present a gap, an entrance point to Satan. Vulnerabilities, spiritual vulnerabilities of some sort. It means that no visible Achilles heels in, in, are in his life. And Paul is just not talking about the spiritual here, but about all areas of life, as we'll see. Second, let's t talk about the grave peril to avoid. The great danger great threat to guard against. And this is why it's so important to really be systematic and pray to God about selecting the right types of men here in this church at Ephesus, right? I see the great danger as having to do with the activity of the devil. Elders of all people are the target of the forces of evil. They are the preferred target of the darts of the enemy. An elder is always keenly aware feels the burden of, feels the pressure of spiritual warfare. It's not like being a middle manager in some company. This is a different type of job. This is a frontline job, all right? Twice in this passage, notice, Paul mentions the devil 
in connection with elder qualifications. Verse 6, he must not be a new convert because he may fall into condemnation. He's talking about the new convert being puffed up like the devil, fall into condemnation of the devil. And verse 7, he must have a good testimony with those outside the church so that he will not fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil. Oh, wow. What is a snare? Uh, the word in the Greek is the word for trap. A snare is a trap, a scheme, a trick, a stratagem. A snare is what hunters use, right, to, to catch animals alive without killing them. Right? Oh, Satan is, <laughs> has some snares. He is a hunter. He is a trickster. I hope you believe that. Satan is a trapper. He, he, he's a trickster. He, he, he's a predator. First Peter 5.8 compares Satan to a roaring lion who is going on the prowl around and around like a roaring lion. There's nothing spontaneous really about a lion jumping on his prey. Oh, no, no. There's been some prowling around, which implies some methodical, systematic way. Oh, that's the devil. He is like a roaring lion seeking someone to, to hurt? No. To devour. To devour. How many pastors right, have been devoured? This is very contemporaneous. This is very applicable. How many leaders, church leaders, they just somehow they get devoured, right? Timothy, be careful. These are the elder qualifications and most of them have to do with uh, spiritual life, inner life. So here, are, finally, here are the five arenas of life uh, to be above reproach, to guard against the snare of the devil. So what are these five arenas? Number one, the sexual slash moral arena. Number two, the social slash interpersonal relationships arena. Number three, the money slash financial arena. Number four, the family life arena. And number five, the secular arena. Are you ready for that interview? Men? <laughs> Some men maybe here today that want to aspire to the office of eldership. In your interview, you will be asked these questions. Timothy, make sure in your interview you address all these issues, right? So let's go to the sexual moral arena. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. An elder must be above reproach in his relationship with the opposite sex, meaning women. Okay, we have to say that now, right? The description that Paul uses is husband of one wife, which is a notoriously difficult grammatical construction in the Greek to really pin down exactly what Paul is after, right? So is Paul saying that the elder must be married, period, uh, husband of one wife uh, to qualify as an elder? In other words, uh, single man, don't bother to apply. I don't think he's after that. That's a, a good discussion for later, but it's probably Paul is going through some, for something else. Is Paul saying that the elders cannot be married to multiple women at the same time? In other words, they cannot be polygamous to be elders? Hardly, right? Hardly. That would be a requirement for any Christian, period. Anybody that follows Christ... It's one woman per man, one man per woman. So Paul is not saying that. Does Paul mean that a man that has become a widower uh, 
or has been divorced in the past and since has remarried cannot qualify as an elder? Not sure, but uh, that may be a good practical situation to discuss in, in this context. However, let me give you the context. Maybe the context of what's happening in Ephesus can help us to understand what this husband of one wife maybe meant in context. There were some issues between the sexes in Ephesus. It was a little bit of a Corinth in that sense, right? We know this, for example. This church was full of widows. And especially what Paul calls young widows that were vulnerable and were making bad decisions in this area. We know that. And in some cases probably had succumbed to the advances of some of these ungodly men. Listen to, that, to this description in 1 Timothy 5, verse 11. Hopefully you'll see it. Talking about the list of widows that the church should support. Don't put on that list younger widows, says Paul, for when they feel physical desires alienating them from Christ, they want to get married. Meaning, I think, they want to get married in their passions, out of the will of God, things like that. Thereby incurring condemnation because they have ignored their previous pledge. Verse 14 Therefore, I want younger widows, says Paul, to get married. I'm not against them getting married. I want them to get married, have children, manage their households, and give the enemy, again, same terminology, the enemy, the devil, no opportunity for reproach. Oh, the snares of the devil, also for these younger widows. For some have already turned away to follow Satan. And my guess is that these false teachers antagonists to Timothy were probably praying, uh, P-R-E-Y, praying particularly on these women and taking advantage of them in more ways than one. It may be that Paul is referring to these men and women later on in 2 Timothy chapter 3 when he says the following, talking about these same, men, these same false teachers. So bear with me. I'm, I'm almost done here. I really, I think... For among them, Paul says, are those who slip into households and captivate weak women, weighted down with sins, led on by various impulses. Again, those passions of the younger widows may come to mind. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So oh, I'm giving you all these passages to maybe, maybe, maybe this context may help you understand better what this husband of one uh, husband of one woman means, right? Husband of, husband of one wife means, I'm sorry. Okay? Um, in short, I think we're talking about a one-woman man. This prospective elder has to demonstrate, Timothy, that he is a one-woman man, that he will not flirt with, try to seduce, try to influence members of the opposite, opposite sex in ungodly ways. In other words, the behavior of a biblical elder should stand in direct contrast to what these antagonists were doing, right? And their behavior that they were exhibiting. Unfaithfulness, immorality, licentiousness, sensuality of many kinds are incompatible with the role of an elder. Area number two, arena number two, the social interpersonal relationships arena. The social interpersonal relationships arena. I would put things there in that category. Things like, verse 1, temperate. He must be temperate. 
He must be self-controlled. He must be respectable. He must be hospitable. Not overindulging in wine. Not a bully. Not a bully. The word there is not a hitter. Not a striker. Somebody that doesn't use physical violence. Not a hitter. But gentle, not contentious. Timothy, an aspiring elder, must be above reproach in all these items as well. And again, I think we must understand these admonitions in contrast to what Timothy's antagonists were like in that church. We have several verses. Don't have time to read them, but there are several verses with these characterizations of these ungodly men in that church, right? These antagonists were not temperate. These antagonists, they were not self-controlled. These antagonists, they were pleasure-seeking. They were bullies. They were clearly not gentle, and they were extremely contentious. Be careful, Timothy, that these men that aspire to the office also fulfill these, uh, these conditions. Arena number three of being above reproach. This one is tough, money and financial. The only thing that Paul says here is he, this candidate elder, must be free from the love of money. Free from the love of money. A biblical elder is a man that can resist the pull of money. A man who is not concerned with accumulating wealth or with acquiring wealth at all costs, without any sacrifice, just for the lure of money and possessions. Do you think money can be a snare in the life of a Christian leader? <laughs> How many modern pastors and leaders have fallen, have been devoured by the snare, by the trap of money? It's amazing. They write one book. <laughs> they get royalties. They, they sell 10,000 copies. And they say, they can do the number. They say, I'm going to write another book. And all of a sudden, uh, sometimes, even though they may not make a whole lot of money being in the ministry, um, there is opportunities to make an you know, unwise gain. There, there is opportunity in even in the ministry. And money is what these bad men were after. Listen to this, 1 Timothy 6, 9. Again, we'll go to the context, right? These men, these antagonists, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and a snare. And many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. That is the context of that verse. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The prospective elder in his resume, <laughs> if he would be applying for a job like this, uh, must be able to include a line, a demonstrable line, free from the lure of money to avoid being possibly ensnared by the devil on this account. Okay? Should I continue? This is tough, isn't it? Is there such a man in the world? <laughs> I pray, praise God for the elders that we have here, man. I praise God for the, our elders. 
Arena number four, family life arena. This one is a painful one. This prospective elder must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. For if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Makes sense, right? This is a very painful requirement. It may almost sound to you that it may be too high of a... I'm, I'm even being tempted to skip over this one, right? That is certainly a high bar to jump through. He's not saying, of course, that these children must be perfect. Praise God. If you are not supposed to be perfect as an elder, your kids are not supposed to be perfect. But, but maybe they should be also above reproach in, in a certain sense. I think what he's saying is this man would have be, at the very least be modeling a Christ-like parenting style. He must be nurturing his kids. He must be loving his kids and have them in general submission. Oh, how Satan can use our families, can use our kids, right, to trip us up in ministry, correct? And especially existing elders and men that aspire to becoming one. I, I have seen in my past uh, how m some men in my past, I, I have seen, they had the motivation to becoming an elder, they had the skill set to becoming an elder, but even in the qualifications, they were not able to become elders or they were not accepted by that local church uh, because of their family situation. Right? That's, it's a pity, but, but Paul has to put this in, right? And then finally, the secular arena. The secular arena. Verse 7, and he must have a good, good reputation with those outside the church. This may sound to you a little bit out of place. Why do we care of what people outside that don't know Christ think about our elders? Well, what's, what's the logic behind it? Well, prospective elder Timothy must be a balanced man. He must not be a just good in church, but also effective and blameless in his secular life. His relationship with unbelievers, he must be a good worker, <laughs> he must have a, have a good work ethic, um, he must have a good reputation with those outside. You don't want an elder, a prospective elder, to then um, have a disorderly life outside the church so that very quickly gossip starts. And I have seen this happen too. Um, so and so, is, is that your elder? Why is he late to work all the time? So and so, is that an elder, leader in your church? How, how come he's so mean with people? Things like that, right? So, Timothy, that is part also of the list. Because the devil, again, will use any visible shortcoming in this area to trip up that man. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. I'm almost done, and it's before 12 noon. I did pretty good. I think this would be a great time to think about our own elders here. Praise God for having given us such a godly bunch of men to oversee his work here. I mean, these men have a demonstrable track record, right? They've been in good times and bad times. They are the real deal, ladies and gentlemen. If you are new in this assembly, let me tell you, we are proud of our elders here. We love them. They are the real deal. I know, I know, because of direct experience, I know. I, let's pray for them. Let's pray for divine protection.
for wisdom for the wives and families. And let's also ask, as a final note, let's also ask God that godly, capable, and willing future elders, young people, can aspire to this office and can meet the qualifications and in time be recognized by our congregation. And let the, keep the devil, man, let's keep the devil out of this church. Amen. So, let's pray. Let's pray. And we'll, we'll be done. Let's just pray. I'm going to ask you to do something different. I'm going to ask you to think of one elder in particular of our church. Just one and pray for him right now as we, as we are in silence. John, Dick, Ron, Ken, Pavan, even Mike, Dan, let's pray right now for one of the leaders of our church as we finish. Let me give you a minute or two to pray for one, at least, of these men. Lord, we are so, so thankful for our elders in this congregation. Thank you for these men. Their names are John, Dick, Ron, Ken, Pavan, and others, Mike and Dan, and even thank you for Lord Stan's work through the years here, and, and others, Lord. Thank you for them. We pray for them for protection. The one that are exercising right now in our midst. And we pray for new elders, new, new men that can step up and also uh, desire to do this work. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.